This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of the U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production, with over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership of $500 value is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your coast of cooking issues coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We got Nastasia Lopez waiting for her exterminator to show up in Stamford, Connecticut on the Long Island Sound. We got uh, Matt in his Brooklyn booth, 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 booth. And we got uh, John chilling in, in Murray Hill. He still has not figured out where Murray comes from. Am I correct? I did. It was a uh, shipping merchant. That's weak. Yeah. What yeah, what else would you expect? It makes I don't, I don't know. know sense. A shipping merchant? I mean, it's I just like so. yeah, Robert what, what, Murray, what? mercantile shipping. family that settled in the area in the 18th century. Yeah, Nastasi wants to know what do they ship? Yeah, and can we protest them? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it changed. Uh, uh, all right. Uh. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just boring. Shipping merchant is boring. I'm, sure, I'm looking more up. I'll, I'll let you guys know. Shipping merchant more. does feel like it's a Wikipedia entry that's been edited to obscure reality. Yeah. 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 Shipping merchant is like the modern day. What do you do? Imports and exports. <laughs> yeah. Mm, okay. Um, the, the other name thing that John was supposed to look up is why in English... Dutch is slang for crappy. That I did not look up. I didn't know that was an assignment for, for this. Yeah, well, well now you know. I'm Next week. Yeah. Because I don't understand it. Like, Americans traditionally don't have anything against the Dutch, right? So it has to be something about... It has to be something about Germans. It has to be, like, a bastardization of the word Deutsch, right? I would think so. Uh, so strange news. Uh, I know John knows about this. I don't know if Nastasia is yet aware because she uh, does not follow the food news. Am I correct? I I do, but you, you I do. Mean, Whenever I ask you a question about food or person, you're like, I don't know. I don't care about that. I mean, I know about restaurants. Oh, but what, yeah? are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, the French Culinary Institute, now the International Culinary Center, this is the strangest one. I was not expecting this, is merging with ICE. Yeah, you told Whoa. me. What did you say? You had told me that. That's not possible because I learned this morning and I haven't spoken to you today. Oh, so maybe I learned from somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. So, so for those of you that don't know, here in New York City for the longest time, 
there have been two major, I mean, there's lots of cooking schools, but there's been two major like cooking schools. Now, if you're not from New York, you might think that, um, that the CIA, which is not the spy corporation, the spy thing, but the, um, what's it, the CIA stands for the Culinary Institute of America. They are in New York State, but they are not anywhere near New York City. When I say not near, I mean nowhere's close. Like how far away, how far away is uh, Hyde Park, uh, guys? Do you guys even know? An hour. What? Two hours? Something like that. Two hours? And, uh, and so, and the CIA is a, a college. So it is a, like, it's a regular college that is culinary, but it's college. Whereas here in New York City, we had two, what are called vocation, they were technically vocational schools, right? So you had the French Culinary Institute uh, founded by Dorothy Can Hamilton. That's where I was the director of culinary technology, where Anastasia was heir apparent and cooking issues, uh, blog meister and um, what's it called? Uh, internship uh, program leader, right? What, 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 do you have an actual title there? I'm just making all this up, just giving your job description. No, you said nobody needs titles. So I it's went. true. It's true. Uh, but then you made up your own title. It was there apparent? But that's after you left the you, FCI. You made that up, and yes, it was. You after. made that up. Okay. Anyway, so uh, we were there, and sometime while we were there, they took on uh, Italian. So the French Culinary Institute was founded. I don't know, sometime in the eighties by Dorothy Can Hamilton. And it was, you know, she got this amazing group of chefs. I'm sure most of you already have heard the story from me. So she got uh, Alan Sayak. Alan Sayak became the dean. And he was like old school, old school Frenchy French guy. Hilarious. I love, I love that guy. Like I worked for him. He always kind of like would give me side eye because I wasn't, you know, classically French trained. But he also was very generous to me with his time. He was at... Um, Le Cirque for a while. Le Cine was his, uh, the, which say Swan. It's, say, say that with a nice French accent there, John. Le yeah, the Swan. Le Cine? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah. a couple other places. He's actually also the chef, I think, at the, uh, at the 51 Club for a while, which is weird, right? Like way back in the day. Um, that's what it's called, right? 51 Club? Anyway. Um, so okay. he was this kind of... The guy, he would walk around and like just kind of say crazy things. Like I remember one time I met with him early on and I just washed my hands and he made me kind of shake his hand. He's like, shake my hand. And then my hand was still a little wet because I hadn't dried it off. He's like, I hated that. I hated that. And I was like, yo, man. And so that's from then on. I've never shaken someone's hands in a professional situation. It's always elbow or fist bumps. Always 100% of the time. Is, so, is, that a, is it a dog? I thought it was a dog before. Yeah, Major has decided that he's going to whine the whole time. Could we, is there like a treat <laughs> we can give him or something? I'm glad he can't hear you say that. I believe there is not. Would you like me to check? I mean, maybe. He started doing it literally to, 100% not, of the time. <laughs> I mean, this is like, you know, Nastasia thinks it's, you know, cute when other people have their real life Corona stuff happen. Hold on a second. I'll see. Give me one second. Yes. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. 
They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. And we're back. So, now he also told me this story like, Alain Sayak, old school, old school French guy. And, uh... He would always, he's the guy that I think I said on the air got real mad at me because I wanted some, uh, I wanted some mustard with my uh, country style pate. And, and he literally looked at me, almost spat in my face and was like, Americans. I was like, hey, ho, I like mustard with my country style pate. Um, can you hear Major? I'm, I, Dax tried to take him into his room, but I can still kind of hear him. Yes. It's a lot better though. Here's what happened, people. I'm trying to tell you about the French Culinary Institute, which is merging. It's not going to be its own thing anymore. And instead, I'm talking about... So, last night, my kids walked the dogs at night, and I walked them in the morning, right? After you walk them in the morning, then you feed them. Now, last night, they gave the dogs the last of the food. Did anybody tell me that we were out of dog food? No, 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 no one told me we're out of dog food. So I didn't realize until it was too late to go back out and get some this morning that they are out. So Major is just pissed that he has not been fed. And they, (laughs) I guess this morning, because I heard Booker give the dog some treats, gave the dogs the last of the treats. And so there's nothing to even temporarily bribe them during the radio program. So if you hear some squealing and scratching, I'm not abusing the dog. The dog's just mad at me and letting me know. All right. All right? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about that now. So uh, he also told me a story once where – so he was growing up in the – so I was asking uh, Chef Sayak about game, right, specifically uh, things like uh, woodcock and grouse. And everyone hopefully remembers the story where I was spitting uh, buckshot and rancid uh, woodcock guts all in Nastasia's face – not on purpose, but they were just all stuck to the outside of my mouth because I was, I was fisting and muzzle eating these like uh, birds at Hicks restaurant in London. Remember that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, so Chef Alain hated, hated kind of like bloody rare things and hated game. And I asked him one day why. And he said, when I was a small child, my dad would bring home these game birds and hang them in the basement and he would let them go until they were like stinky and then we'd have to cook them like rare and then I would watch them eat and just the stuff coming out of his teeth and he's like, and I've never been able to eat it since. And so basically you are Alan Sayak, Nastasia. You and Alan Sayak share something in this kind of experience of people eating game birds and having it be like a, a revolting experience. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So anyway, so uh, Alan was the dean, you know, and he was the dean for decades until Nils came on. Nils Noren, our buddy Nils Noren, came on and took over and, you know, kind of did the Nils Noren thing there. Uh, and they had Jacques Pepin, which who we called uh, Jackie Peeps, the Peep Show. What else we used to call him? I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, him, Jacques Therese, who's now famous, uh, you know, in non-food circles for his uh, Nailed It stuff with Nicole Byer. Uh, oh, I'm missing someone. I'm missing one of the deans. Anyway, so they were, oh, Andre Soltner, who was like, you know, for many, many decades owned and ran Lutece with his wife, and which was the best restaurant in all of New York in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Anyways, so like they created this like core of culinary, French culinary techniques. It was called the French Culinary Institute. And then sometime when we were there, you know, in the early 2000s, they brought Cesare Casella on to become the, the, to do his Italian program. And they teamed up. And this is the key thing where things started to change a little bit. They teamed up with this Italian school in, uh, where, where was that? Anyway, where, where is that? Alma, something like that, Nastasia, something like that? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, this Italian school. And the Italians were like, ain't no way, ain't no way I'm partnering with a bunch of French bastards. And so they literally, that's what happened. And so they had to change the name of the school from the French Culinary Institute to the uh, International Culinary Center. All right, now, simultaneously, and, and the FCI's main thing was is you came in for a career program and on the, on the cooking side, not on the pastry side, it was a little bit different, but on the cooking side, you came in and you did either the daytime or the nighttime, and you, you worked your way through four levels of classroom work, and then your last two levels, you actually worked in a kitchen that served a restaurant, and the restaurant's name was L'Ecole, and L'Ecole was a fantastic deal. It was, it's down, it was down on um, Grand and Broadway, and you would go, and it was kind of like, it's kind of like supercuts. Like sometimes you would get a fantastic meal, but you, like you had to kind of time it. Like the very first day that the students were on, the chefs had to do a lot of the work because stuff was getting effed up real bad. And then like day or two or three, like you know, the students were doing almost everything, but then you might get some problems. But then after that, in the level, like they were pretty solid and running. And all of the all of the the food was created by. The, you know, these like, kind of old school, like awesome French chefs. And then you would get this great meal for pretty cheap because, you know, they weren't trying to make a lot of money with it. They were just trying to get the students to practice. They had a decent wine list with great prices. And I loved going to Lake Hall. Even before I was involved with the FCI, I would go to Lake Hall kind of regularly because, you know, I didn't have any money and it was a good deal. Anyways, um, so that was the French Culinary Institute. And then it was called Peter Kump was the, what ICE used to be called. And while we were more kind of focused on professional stuff, like Kump was more focused on kind of hobby and small courses. And, but Kump grew into ICE, got this huge space downtown, and they were our arch rivals. So the French Culinary Institute where we were was when Dorothy Hamilton founded it. Here's something I don't know I've talked about. Her dad founded Apex Technical Schools. Now, for any of you that grew up anywhere near the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut major metropolitan area, you who are a little older, Apex Technical Commercials had a very famous spokesperson who would get on and he would say several things that's gonna be like instant for anyone that was around here. Free set of tools when you graduate. So you got your free set of tools whenever you graduated from whether it was like air conditioning repair or anything like this. 
And the other thing was, uh, I can't make the first call. I can't call you. You have to make the first step and call us. And those two hooks were what caused Apex Technical Schools to become kind of like the biggest, best, most famous technical school in the entire kind of New York area. And the guy who founded that, his daughter was Dorothy Hamilton. And she's like, I'm going to found my own technical school and founded the SCI. So the SCI was technically a technical school. And all of us teachers had to go and take these courses because technical schools a lot of time rip people off. And so they're very heavily, very heavily um, regulated by the state. So it's much harder to get a job cooking, uh, teaching at a technical school and keep it for your certifications than it is a major university because a major university can just decide to hire you. I mean, it's not harder because obviously, whatever. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean it that way, but I mean from a regulation standpoint. Anyways, so Comp, AKA ICE, was the biggest, 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 biggest competitor. In fact, when I got a job at the French Culinary Institute, and when I, actually, when I was leaving and I was gonna be a consultant there only, they wanted me to be exclusive to the French Culinary Institute. I'm like, I'm not gonna be exclusive because I already do like guest gigs at Harvard and all this other crap. They're like, all right, you can do whatever you want, but don't teach at ICE. Whatever you do, you can't teach at ICE. They were arch enemies. So to hear that they are, uh, and of course, Dorothy died a couple of years ago, like Hall closed down, everything changes, but I'm just a little shocked that they're merging. It's the strangest thing. I mean, what, what you guys have anything about this? No. Man. No, I just no, feel really. it's the end of an era. Particularly wrapped up in the, in the, I mean, like, we never pranked each other. You never, like, went to the other campus. Come on. It's a good rivalry. Nothing. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a Harvard-Yale thing. Like, you know, cause we were a little more adult than that. You know, no one was peeing on anyone else's statue as far as I know. You know what I mean? As far as I can tell, there was no statue urination or, you know, I never went to ICE and uh, stole a fire extinguisher and then discharged it all in a hallway in the middle of the night. I never did that at ICE. Well, with some creative editing on my part, you just admitted to doing both those things. <laughs> but I don't know. Anyway, to me, it's just uh, – and like when you read the, the stuff on the in, – in the New York Times, Florence Fabricant just wrote a, uh, a piece on it. Um, you know, it's like painted as this kind of like, oh, it's great. These two cooking schools are merging, but like – for those inside, it's just throwing me for a loop. It's hard for me to think about uh, anything else. Speaking of New York Times, Nastasi hates it when I talk about shows, so close your ears. Uh, I, I just watched the uh, last episode of uh, Ray Donovan, the series, Leif Schreiber, who I like, but Nastasia does not. Nastasia, you do not like Leif Schreiber, right? He's fine. Why? I thought you said you saw him on the street and you're like, meh. Yeah, I mean, he's not a, as attractive as I thought he'd be. Okay. That's what I meant. Okay. So they spent a good, like, it was a major thing. They were going against Pete Wells about his Luger review. Like, they took, like, all of this time during a very major plot point thing to talk about the Peter Luger's review and how Pete Wells was somehow, like, you know, who the hell was he to say that Peter Luger's wasn't worth any stars? Crazy, right? Are you in the show? In the show. In the show. How can that possibly be part of a good television show? I don't know. It was weird. Now can you hear all the weird uh, gaming going on in my background? Should I fix that too? Hold on a second. Uh, Booker has this game called Bop It. 
And he's 18, but he still loves the Bop It. I don't know why he loves the Bop It. There's like 8,000 Bop It's. These games, if you're not... Are you familiar with Bop It, the game? No. So there are these... It's basically a piece of plastic with a bunch of switches in it. And it's got like one that you hit, one that you twist, one that you pull. And there's all different. There's Bop It, there's Bop It Extreme, there's Bop It blah, blah, blah. So Booker has collected all the Bop It's. He has a Bop It in Spanish. He has a Bop It in English. He has miniature Bop It's, large size Bop It's. Like uh, he's getting a German Bop It, all these Bop It's. And they're real irritating because it's just, it goes, Bop It. And you have to hit the thing and then, you know, spin it, twist it. And then like if you don't do the right thing, then it like, it like, you know, yells at you and says something horrible, right? So, and these games are well-known irritating and like they, they, they penetrate my brain and my dreams. So I don't know what, he was searching boppets on the internets the other day and he realized that people have hacked the boppets. They cut a resistor, which it's so old school, the technology that they actually use a resistor to uh, run the oscillator for the microprocessor. So you can change the resistor and change the clock speed of the microprocessor and thereby change the speed of the game. So he installed this thing that allows him to be like, bah. he made me do it. He installed it. He made me do it yesterday. Bop it. And he can go, pop it, pitch it, pop it, pop it. And so like now, like all day, I've been hearing like super slow and super fast versions of bop it. And I'm about to lose my freaking mind. Yeah, you're so brave for helping him do that in this time where you can't leave your house that much. I know. And considering that, like, I spent the early part of his life re-engineering everything in the house to not make noise. Like, I remember I had to, I told this on the air, like, I have the Zojirushi uh, rice cooker, and I'm the only one that I know of that, that I don't have the I'm done noise. Like, he used to sing a song. I don't even remember what it is, but I would have to open up all of my gear and cut all of the signal stuff because otherwise he would lose his mind when I was cooking rice. Anyways. All right, let's answer some questions. Let's answer some questions. Uh, from Monty via email. Oh, by the way, I was going to do a Classics in the Field. Nastasia, you'll be, you'll be glad to know. I was going to do a Classics in the Field that had to do with flour milling today, but I knew that you would kill me. Yeah. Well, didn't we have... When was... Well, how many months until we can have another bread slash flour related uh, thingamajig? That's up to you, Dave. Oh, it's not to me. I have to, come on, it's up, to, it's up to all of us. Give me a break. All right, John, when do you want to do it? Two weeks from now? Oh, Nastasi was hoping you would say months, but okay. <clears throat> all right. Uh, speaking of which, I did bake another pie from uh, Pie Marches On, which, you know, as everyone knows, is my you know, current favorite classics in the field. Angela Garbatz, who was on the show, we should have her back on, see how her uh, thing is doing. She also just purchased a copy. So I, I realized that there's not even a lot of copies left available. Someone needs to reprint that. But John thought maybe I should read this one quote. Should I read the quote, John? I think so. I think it was pretty great. Yeah. And uh, we brought this up because uh, we're not posting this kind of stuff on social media right now, but I did make a 4th of July pie. So the cherries that I told you guys I picked last week, which were Montmorency sour cherries, I pitted them. And then instead of making a traditional cherry pie, which it doesn't seem to me that a lot of people actually like, just the pieces of cherry with the goop, uh, I did a version of kind of a whipped cherry pie. So I took uh, the fresh cherries, I blended them, uh, sugar, heated them up, stirred cornstarch into that, and then just as the cornstarch came up and functionalized, added to a boil, 
I folded it into uh, egg white, you know, whipped egg white with, with sugar, like Stiff Peaks, and then put that into my, now I've told you a million times, but please, the, the real crust with the graham cracker on both sides. So I put that pie filling in, and these were very strongly flavored cherries, really tart. So it was like a very, still very strongly flavored kind of whipped pie. Then I put, uh, you know, as it was setting, I put over the top fresh blueberries and then little stars made of uh, pie crust. So it was good, but you can't see it because we're not posting stuff on social right now. This from Monroe Boston Strauss. Good pie is an asset to every menu. Poor pie is a detriment regardless of who makes it. You may be outstanding for your pies, but so long as an operator in your community serves poor pie, you will never reach the peak of success in sales. Your interest in good pies should extend to your neighbor. In helping him to help himself to make good pies, you help yourself. Let's overcome once and for all the soggy, underbaked crust condition. How's that for a quote? Pretty good, yeah, very good quote. It's a good quote. Yeah, good quote. Um, anyway, all right. Um, Dear Cooking Issues Crew, this is from Monty. I splurge in order to control freak because of the chef steps discount. It has not arrived yet. I'm sure it's arrived by now, am I right? My question is about omelets. How do you control the temperature to keep the eggs from sticking, but not so high that they get too overcooked and tough on the bottom, but are cooked all the way through? Uh, how would you dial that into a control freak? Would you be able to use the same principles for, let's say, crepes? Uh, thanks, Monty from Jacksonville, Oregon. I didn't know they had a Jacksonville in Oregon. Nastasia, is uh, you ever you ever heard of Jacksonville, Oregon? No. Oh. No. Uh, all right. Do you think it's uh, similar to? I'm trying. The only Jacksonville, obviously, I can think of is Florida. It's the only Jacksonville I've ever been to. I had a rather negative experience in Jacksonville, Florida. Someone tried to uh, run my wife and my car off the road. Not good. It was bad. Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't sound great. Yeah, it was the middle of the night. It was the kind of early 90s. And it was, I don't know, like three in the morning or something like this. And we're flying down the road because I was trying to get to my grandparents' house. And I decided to take a nap. And my wife was driving. So I had the seat leaned back, which, yeah, yeah, I get it, Nastasia. Poor etiquette for me to lean back while my wife's driving. But on the other hand, we were driving 24 hours straight, no brakes. And I needed a little bit of time to kind of shut my eyes. And they thought that she was driving alone in the car. And so they pulled up like a side of us and someone else pulled in front and they started slowing down to, to stop the car and like push her off the side of the highway. And then I popped up and they sped off. How crazy is that? Crazy. That's insane. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the nineties, different time. Um, Don't blame it on the nineties when you can just as easily blame Florida. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. I will, I'll leave that at there. I'm not going to insult Florida the way I know Nastasia will. What was the name of that person who came on who hated Florida so much? She was awesome. Remember her? Anyway. Um, so, uh, cr- okay, so crepes and omelets, two different problems, right? The heat on a crepe, most of the, the issues, first of all, I'm going to let John talk a little bit about, about crepes because I happen to like overcooked American-style omelets. John, do you like um, overcooked American-style omelets? I, no, not really. Yeah? No, not really. I'm definitely much more about the, the yeah. Nastasia, what about you? Omelets. Yeah. yeah, I like overcooked omelets. Yeah, I think you like an American overcooked omelet. 
because you grew up in Covina, land of American overcooked omelets. You probably like watery, chopped up like uh, peppers in them the same way I do. I like that stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, what about you, Matt? Are you an omelet guy? Of course, of course. And I probably never even had like a legit good one. Oh, they're good. They're real good. Like they're creamy in the center. First of all, I got to ask this question. How many of you show of voices? How many of you enjoy scrambled eggs? I mean, yeah. Yep. Stas? Stas? Yes. Now, do you like the tiny creamy curd that you get from that kind of constant stirring or like the big fluffy, like not overcooked, but like some dry parts and some not the American style? American style. American. John? I prefer the wet, the smaller curds, constant stirring. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, speaking of French Culinary Institute, like at the French Culinary Institute, like when you got to the restaurant thing, they would make you sit there and make omelets constantly because they wanted you to be able to make that French style omelet. And if you can't make that small curd style scrambled egg at the French culinary, you were dead, dead in the water. Wiley Dufresne to this day is a, you know, my brother-in-law, also a lover of both American cheese and eggs, like uh, will only make the tiny curd, uh, uh, tiny curd stirred French style of uh, scrambled egg. But crepes, and omelets are different problems. With omelet, you're mainly worried about uh, the sticking. So a lot of it's about the non-stickness and also getting that thin film to wipe out and then letting it sit, free itself, knocking it free at just the right moment and flipping it over. The reason American omelets are not the same isn't necessarily because of the pan, in my opinion. It's because of the stuff that it's added to it to change the kind of texture of the egg. And the other issue is there's just too much egg in the pan. So like, um, you know, like the way that I'll do it if I want, like not that kind of American style texture is you can pull, if you have a very nonstick like cast iron, you can pull the skin back and then rerun fresh egg over it without kind of getting it fluffy or big and then fold it over and you can still keep the inside kind of wet. But anyway, I see it as a fundamentally different kind uh, of an issue. A crepe, the real problem is just getting enough heat, it being nonstick, but it getting enough heat onto it because that thin, it's basically pouring like a thin bunch of water onto the bottom and you need to heat, heat back up uh, pretty quickly. So I see them as fundamentally different problems. But the control freak is gonna be great. It, it's, I use it constantly in situations where I want a relatively high heat, but I don't wanna worry about scorching, right? So, um, like what's one thing that I do a lot? You, you, know, um, you know how you take artichokes, artichoke uh, hearts and you, you, you quarter them and then you stick them in a pan with oil and then you, uh, you know, I put a little salt, sugar, pepper, whatnot, but then you bring it up and the idea is to crisp up the bottom of the artichoke and steam it at the same time and then pull the lid off of the, off of the uh, pan so that it can really crisp up on the bottom after they just steam themselves. And if you do it just right, you get a brown, crusty, not burnt, side on the on the artichoke heart and then the rest of it is kind of steamed perfectly you know what i'm talking about stas yeah you yeah. like that right no no yes i said oh, oh uh that is intensely easy to do on uh, a control freak because you can set the pan to almost the exact temperature you want and you can keep it kind of steaming and you can get it brown but you're never going to kind of scorch it or overcook it right so it's like really good at stuff like that. 
Uh, I gotta be honest, I don't cook eggs on it because I just use my super, I just like crank the heat up on my gas thing and go. Cause I don't really worry about like hyper temperature control on, um, on my omelets and my scrambled eggs. But I don't know, but the, the, once you have the control freak, I think you'll find that there's lots of situations where, uh, here's another one. Like you, you want to, you're, it's great for reheating, that's obvious, but like a lot of uh, meats and whatnot, you wanna bring them just up to like kind of a, a, a searing uh, temperature, and then you want the lid on, you would pull off. Anytime you wanna create that bottom crust without kind of burning it, it's great. Uh, therefore also like saute veg without burning, like, like do, do you guys, everyone likes browned, well, no. do you like Brussels sprouts? Do you guys like Brussels sprouts? Yeah. Right, but you don't like it, I'm sure, assuming, you like it when they're brown but not burnt, right? And a lot of times it can be hard to kind of draw that line between brown and burnt, or especially if you're like me and you add a little bit of sugar to a lot of your veg, you tend to get scorching earlier than you otherwise would, and the Control Freak is kind of great for that. So I think you're gonna find a lot of uh, good uses for it. I mean, maybe it's gonna be good for crepes. It's hard for me to know because, you know, I have a giant, gas-fired Crampose crepe maker that I use for crepes, and it's, you know, why would I use anything else? Am I right? Anyway, I don't know. Do you have anything, do you have anything else to add about crepes or, uh, or omelets, guys? Nope. nope. No? Nope. Speaking of expensive big things, John, what is the name of that grill that we were looking at, also from Ray Donovan, where I saw it the oh. first time? God, I don't remember. I need to find that. It, it's, did we talk about this on air already, the, the $20,000 grill? Yeah. yeah. How are we gonna get how are we gonna get our, our tentacles into those people? And speaking of Nastasia stopped eating uh cephalopods. Did you hear about this, people? No. Yeah. She stopped eating cephalopods. All of a sudden she decided they're too smart to eat, right? Yeah. That's the breaking food news you should have led with. I mean This is what the people need to know. I was like, octopus, she's like, no, it's sad, they're smart. I'm like, squid, no, sad, they're smart. I was like, Cuttlefish, he's like, don't care, don't eat them. I right. was like, I was like, okay, all right. But I, yeah, I, I led with my argument, which is a, like, they're more like aliens. Their intelligence is more like aliens than like mammal style intelligence. And so maybe we should kill them so they don't take over and turn us into their butlers. Because I swear to God, mm. as soon as an octopus has the mutations whereby one, they uh, can survive past mating, right? Because remember. After an octopus like does the deed and has kids, they die. That's a, it's a one it's a one shot thing. So like after the male does the mating, it wanders off onto the bottom of the ocean to get eaten by other things. And after the female does the female eats a bunch of stuff, lays its lays its eggs, and then just sits there blowing uh, blowing water over the eggs to keep them from having, uh, you know, things attack them or parasitites just sits there, doesn't eat the whole time after the, you know, after the eggs hatch, it, you know, she wanders off and dies. If they got rid of that habit and if they didn't just die so damn young, they would definitely take over the world and kill us all. I don't think they would like us. What do you think, Stas? Yeah, I mean, that would be exciting. Yeah, I think they would kill us. Anyway, uh, and if they lived a little bit longer, but before they killed us, I would definitely 
make an aquarium with a motor on it and have a robot butler. For sure, I would have a robot but I mean, uh, an octopus butler with a, with, a, with a robot like movement thing. Wouldn't you? How awesome would that be? Could you imagine, Stas, anything cooler than having a, like a robotic aquarium driven by an octopus butler? Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be sick. Eight arms? I mean, I would just, I mean, imagine. Imagine. Oh my God. They're gonna present this audio in the in the like trial where they they, they put humanity on trial for crimes against octopi. This is gonna be uh, oh gonna listen be when the cephalopods rule the world. If I should be so lucky to still be around, I will be the first person to get strung up because, like <laughs> you know, I know they're smart. They're just delicious, and I just want that butler because the coffee service would be amazing. Like imagine an octopus butler doing like the Turkish coffee routine, all the cups simultaneously, stirring the e-brick, having it come up and then like pouring it and just doing the whole thing at the same time. You imagine how sweet that would be? I can't even conceive of it. Speaking of Turkish coffee, or as the Greeks call it, Greek coffee, John, is there any good place in the city to, to, to get that? Not that I know of. Not in Manhattan, at least. I bet you there's something good out in Queens. I want real with the with with, with the sand. Yeah. I want like good. I want to go back there someday. Well, when we can travel again, maybe. Stars, remember that trip? Mm-hmm. That was fun. Uh, remember how we we almost broke our our butts rather, and you had to like like go down. And you were walking barefoot all over Athens because it was yeah. just so damn slippery. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had our work shoes on. I've said this before on the air, but I'll say it again. If you ever go to Athens, don't wear work shoes. Wear the grippiest shoes you can possibly find, or you will trip and smash your head into a thousand pieces. True or false, does? Yep, true. Yeah, all right. It's like walking over a, a, a damned marble statue. It's crazy. It's dangerous. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they. I don't know how for thousands of years they had civilization. All right. From Antoine, Antoine wants to know if you're doing the Toki, the lowball. Uh, I, in fact, I have sent that uh, recipe to me, so I can do it. Would you like me to? I mean, I'm just telling you. So Jack sent me uh, the recipe. So here is the syrup. Ready for it, people? So the Toki lowball is a joke. Uh, I mean, the name is a joke because everyone was... Toki is a Japanese whiskey made for the American market. So as far as I know, Toki is not available in Japan. But Toki was designed specifically for highballs, for whiskey highball. And the the standard Toki uh, highball is very low alcohol, very high high water content. And so to kind of, you know... Uh, deal with that fact, you know, it, it has, it's a heavily bodied whiskey, not a strong flavor necessarily, not like overwhelming body from a flavor standpoint, but the actual body of it, because they expect you to drink it at a very low alcohol percentage. I'm going to tell you that when you're doing a highball, you should add some glycerin to it to body it up more, especially if you're doing it at the ratios that those guys are doing. Anyway, so uh, Bobby Murphy uh, from existing conditions, made a syrup, and much like Bobby does, he uses, unlike anything I do, everything Bobby does has, like, you know, a bunch of different ingredients that, like, work with each other. So here's the recipe. 40 gram, grams of uh, Lapsang Souchong. Now, we use a very nice uh, Lapsang. So most 
like a lot of Lapsang Souchong teas, which is a smoked tea, are so heavily smoked that uh, it can almost be overwhelming. But the Lapsang that we're using here, and you should try to get a hold of one, is a very lightly, it's a lightly smoked Lapsang, all right? Then 60 grams of Wood Dragon Oolong, which is Oolong tea. And then 100 grams of the Hojicha tea, which is like almost like sticks. They're like little sticks. It's not like really a tea at all. It's Hojicha, H-O-J-I-C-H-A. Then to that, do two and a half uh, liters of water. The recipe in our specs I'll have to change because it actually says 25,000 liters of water, which would be quite a lot, quite a lot. And then, uh, then sugar. And so what you do is you, you brew the tea, strain the tea, and then turn that into a 50-50, uh, add enough sugar to make a 50-50 simple syrup. So that's the Toki Lowball syrup. That's the, the sweetener. And then the other part of the joke about uh, what we're doing is instead of doing a highball, the reason it's a lowball is it's relatively, especially for a carbonated product, relatively high in alcohol, uh, served kind of short and on a rock. So because it's higher in alcohol, it's not as carbonated. And here's the recipe for a large batch. So you'll have to do the math yourself. I don't have time. 5,625 milliliters of water, 4,500 milliliters of Toki whiskey, 563 milliliters of Hojicha syrup, and 150 drops, which I have to do the math, but 150 drops, you can look at my book for the conversion. I believe it's 20 drops for the milliliter uh, of a saline solution. And that's it. Chill it and carbonate it. So uh, that's the recipe, and you guys will have to do the math on how to, how to undo it. Do you want to tell people about your bar opening? Isn't that this week? Well, well, we're shooting for it. We're shooting for, on Friday, opening up for outdoor service. We're going to have a, a meeting. We just need to get all of our kind of ducks in a row to uh, open it up. But it should, it should be exciting, you know? We're going to be out there, um, you know, serving, serving drinks, doing the, doing the stuff. Got to see, see how it works. I know that the city... Uh, got mad about what's been happening the last couple of weeks. And so we're just kind of looking to see other mistakes uh, people have made in terms of not necessarily um, taking care of the social distancing. You know, I just started having social distancing and anxiety dreams. I hadn't had them before. Just the past couple of days, I've been having them where I like, I'm all of a sudden I'm in this giant crowd and no one has masks and everyone's screaming at each other. Is this a dream that everyone's having now? Well, no. Huh. Stas, you having these kinds of dreams? I, she's gone. She, 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 she's, she's gone to the internet somewhere. Yeah. Another thing is how long until the new TV programs have people wearing masks? I feel like all the TV programs I'm watching now are some alternate universe that no longer exists. It's so weird. You know what I mean? I, I do find that very... I don't know, frustrating right now. And I, well, cause I like, I'll watch something and I just get distracted by how happy these people look traipsing around New York, like, <laughs> you know, it free. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go out and get something to eat. I'm going to buy a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? And they're like talking yeah. to the person that they're getting coffee from. And like, at which point I'm completely disengaged from whatever the story was supposed to be because I'm just like, Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not like, it's like, you know, if they were shooting it now, we'd be like, no, get away, they're poison. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> whereas like they're just having an interaction. It's crazy anyway. I guess that's because nobody's shooting stuff anymore, right? Because all of that stuff was put on hold. Ah, whatever. No, yeah, nobody's shooting anything. I mean, I, I, 
some some production companies are supposed to be like isolating entire shoots in random locations, but yeah, not in New York, that's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fruit Cocktail wrote in, uh, hey Dave, uh, reading your book, wanted to ask something, can I replace Ticaloid 210S with another product for the preparation of Orja? It's not very easy to find in Italy. Thank you. Yes, you can substitute a mixture of uh, gum arabic and xanthan. Uh, I forget what the ratio is. I'll try to get it for next week. Uh, I have it penciled into the copy of Liquid Intelligence that I keep at the bar, which is the very first uh, copy, hard copy of Liquid Intelligence that was printed. I have it at the bar and I have it penciled in. But if my memory serves me correctly, it is um, one. It is four parts gum arabic to one part xanthan or thereabouts, and you can use that. Um, Anonymous wrote in, more uh, a control freak question. Would you recommend a control freak for sauces with high sugar content? I'm finding, trying to find a way to keep and maintain a sauce with a high sugar content. What would the best way be? I'm not sure what the problem with the high sugar content sauce is, uh, like what the problem is. If the problem is that you're boiling over, the sucker's going to boil over whether it's in a control freak or not because sugary sauces tend to boil over. But it is very good for not going over temperature. Um, I mean, I, I, I do stuff like sugars and those kinds of boils in, in the control freak just because I can get a relatively high uh, heat input without going over temperature. So it's kind of good for that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know, John, do you have any feeling about what they were asking like more in depth than that or no? Like what, what do you think? Not really, but I'm sure we can get him to elaborate a little bit more for next time. Yeah. Uh, and then Titus wrote in via email. I want to do a briefly follow up about a question I sent a while back. I asked about Dave's thoughts slash advice regarding ventilation in the kitchen because my at the time range hood didn't seem to do anything other than make noise. After thinking through Dave com- uh, Dave's comments, we finally invested in a quality hood that vents outside. It has been a fantastic investment. I'm glad to hear this. Uh, both smoke and grease residue are greatly diminished, which my family appreciates since I have a tendency of creating a lot of smoke. As does anyone that cooks. I like. I can't tell you. I, okay, well, I'm gonna finish what they wrote. Which my family appreciates is have a tendency of creating a lot of smoke. Searing, stir frying, making uh, a tempering oil for Indian food is all much better now. So uh, thanks for your advice. You have fixed my cooking issue. Kind regards and end. That is great. And I have to say that I know a lot of people whose cooking lives are completely affected by the fear of smoke. You know. Um, there's there's one the fear of smoke and so like I've been having you know I, I have been dealing with that I've been torturing my wife for the past 25 years with smokiness in the, in the kitchen um, and for the past I would say 10 or 11 years I've been worried about smokiness as kind of a health issue and I think that there's a lot more people now and and, and I said this years ago but it, it really is true like in the upcoming years indoor air quality I think is going to become a much bigger focus especially now that all of us are inside all the time right is it going to become a much bigger focus for uh, health and almost all apartments and houses are built with absolutely atrocious indoor air quality especially uh, when it comes to um, the kitchen but and for those of you that cook heavily, I mean, hey, Nastasia, when you go visit apartments, are you going to like remember when you go visit apartment and you could tell someone cooked? I mean, you visit, the reason I'm asking you is you visited apartments more recently than I have, like to look for them. Right. You can look up high on the ceiling and you can tell how much they cooked by how big of like a filth, like residue grease garbage they have around the ceiling. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's because there's no good there's no good ventilation. I really think 
that there's something to be done there. And I, I personally need to strike the balance because I know people come into my house and they're like, oh, it's smoky in here. And I'm like, and what? And I should care because why? You know what I mean? And I really think I kind of should care more. So like I do get mad when people ruin dinner because they're worried about a little bit of smoke that's just uh, transient. But on the other hand, I think it probably is bad for you and there's more and more research coming out to say it. So anyway, try to get your uh, ventilation in uh, good order. How, how, is a, how does your kitchen vent at, at Stanford? You just open a window or do you have like, like a hood? No, there's no vent, a window. And is the window at least close to the stove? Yeah. yeah. That's another problem. People don't own their apartments in New York most of the time. And so like they can't even really make an investment to try to, to, to make, it, make it nice. I think it's a real problem. What about you? How's your ventilation, uh, John? No machinery or anything like that, but my stove is right next to a door that goes out to uh, this rooftop patio. So I just open that and have a fan pointed out that way. And it helps. It doesn't make all the difference, but I always unplug the smoke detector when I'm cooking. Oh, God, smoke, smoke detectors. Oh, my God. Smoke detectors. Don't get me started on smoke detectors. Do you, um, do you cook outside a lot, John? No, I would like to, but no. Why, why don't you? They, would, they, would you get caught by somebody? Would you get, like, arrested? I don't know. With the old Super, he wasn't really cool with us grilling outside, but this new one from the last, like, two years seems pretty cool. So I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to try and get a grill or something this summer once this asbestos abatement is done. I told, I, I told you about the time I got the fire department called on me, right? No. Yeah. So I lived in an illegal loft on the 20th floor of a building in the garment district. And this building, I moved in in 97. And this building was complete filth. When I say filth, I don't just mean like the fact that prostitutes would break in at night to turn tricks in the lobby because that's also true. I don't mean that it was just, I spent the first uh, couple of weeks uh, in this place with, with my wife scraping gum off of the floor inside of our unit because that's also true. By the way, when you walk into New York City and you look down on the subway and you see all those black dots, people, that's gum. That is gum. Uh, and so like, what I mean is that the working conditions in this garment building were so atrocious, they wouldn't supply um, bathrooms for the workers. And they would go into the fire stairwell and use it as the restroom for both number one and number two. It was crazy. This is like, like pre, you know, pre-current, like the way New York is now. You, would, you, couldn't, you couldn't even afford to rent a commercial loft in this space now. Anyway, so we're there and... Uh, I had I didn't have any a- outdoor space, but I did have access to this fire stairwell and no one was pooping in my section of the fire stairwell because I was on the top floor. So you had to go down at least one or two floors to get into kind of the, the heavy latrine section of the fire stairwell. So anyway, so like uh, after I realized that, you know, after business hours, no one was coming up there, I was like to hell with it. And I bought a giant grill you know one of those not expensive but you know they're based on a 55 gallon drum like the giant round ones you know the ones i'm talking about yeah (laughs) cheap but big cast iron grates and you know i snuck it up the elevator and i put it into this fire stairwell and i would cook like these immense meals off of this grill uh using like live flame charcoal on the top of a, a in you know basically inside of this building in in new york and one day 
they finally, after four and a half years, installed smoke detectors in the hallway, and I didn't know about it. And there was a, there was a temperature inversion. And so what happened is, is the wind, instead of going like kind of through the hallway, out the fire, uh, uh, you know, stairwell and up, went the other way and sucked the smoke into the building. And I had, I was cooking, uh, you know, I, I would go to my butcher, Michael at the time, and he would get me all kinds of crazy stuff like rack of goat, like giant steaks, like anything where he illegally got me lungs when I asked for them because I wanted to do some lung-based dishes, which were illegal in the US. So like I had like, all this meat going and I didn't realize that there was gonna be a problem until that smoke detector went off. I immediately, of course, beat it with a bat until the stopped making noise, but I didn't know it was connected to the fire department. So the fire department, a whole group of firefighters comes running up in full turnout gear 20 flights of stairs to make it to me, right? To see what's going on. And then they see me grilling and I'm grilling with all this live fire in, the, in, you know, in this fire stairwell. And the, the, the firefighter, she looks at me and she's like, what the hell are you doing? And I was just like, uh, I'm, I'm grilling. She's like, what the hell are you doing with live fire? in a fire stairwell on the 20th floor in New York. And I look at her, you know, and all you hear is from the meat. And I'm like, tastes better? And she's turned around and walked away. That was it. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> turned around and walked away. I was like, wow. I mean, did you offer them some? Yeah. No, I mean, like, it wasn't done yet. I was like, yeah. I think, and then I think then her, like, underling, I was like, was like, yeah, you, you, you have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, eh, okay. You're, you're like, in my defense, I've been doing this for four years. In my, yeah. in my defense, I've been doing this a long time, does taste much better. But like, yeah, like somehow like I get in these situations where like, you know, and Nastasia knows I have this habit. Like sometimes I can just get this look on my face where people like don't know kind of how to deal with it and then they just walk away. Right, Stas? Yeah. Uh, it happens all the time. Anyways, tastes better. Five minutes. All right. So uh, in honor of the French Culinary Institute uh, for the classics in the field. Classics in the field. Yeah. I, I won't do the milling one. I will do uh, the fundamental techniques of classic cuisine from the French Culinary Institute. And the reason I'm choosing this is, is that, you know, since the FCI slash the ICC is not going to be um, its own standalone uh, thing anymore, when I first started teaching there, all of their, there wasn't a lot of like good cooking information on the internets. And when you went to school there, like, and you wouldn't get a book, a textbook. Instead, you got all of these loose leaf binders, like old school loose leaf binders that were full of like all of the recipes. And, you know, they would make changes and they were all written, like I said before, at the beginning of the show by the deans. And the very first book they compiled that was kind of the distillation of their program was the fundamental techniques of classic cuisine. And this is kind of like um, a glossier, newer version of kind of uh, what they would teach you on how to do 
this very specific style of restaurant cooking. So if you want to learn like, you know, how to do the classic vegetable like a l'anglaise where you make the parchment disc and you cut the hole in the center and you, you know, you put the, you put the, the water and like the pat of butter and the, um, and the little parchment over it. You familiar with this one, John? No. Yeah. You're talking about using a cartouche? Well, there's a l'anglaise and there's etuve, right? So there's two, is that what you call it, a cartouche? It's just like a, a piece of parchment that you cut into a yeah. circle and put over your pan. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, a cartouche, yeah. So like they had those two different ways of cooking. If you, want, if you want to learn how to do, to turn vegetables, which are the little footballs, which nobody does anymore. Does anyone still make the footballs, John? Not that I know of. Why would you? Well, because it's like, it's a dumb, fun skill. So one of the, one of the things about learning to cook in, in large scale versus small scale is you have to learn to do a lot of prep, right? And so like I was going to say, like, you know, you haven't busted down a chicken until you've busted down like 50 chickens in a row, right? Because then you really get chicken into the bloodstream. You know what I'm saying? You get the feel of the chicken in your hands. And so chickens are expensive. So one of the things they would have you bust through is they'd have you turn 8 billion potatoes or 8 billion carrots. And then they'd have you go home and turn it. What that is, is you're making, like I say, these little footballs, which are very old school French. But if you want to learn like turning and cooking vegetables, uh, you can, you know, get it out of, get it out of this book. They show you, you know, if you want to learn like the, the height of like French, like French, American style French restaurant cooking in like the 90s and early 2000s, you got to pick up the book. And I got to say, I have a soft spot for this kind of cooking, which is kind of weird. You wouldn't think I would, but I do. Uh, so anyway, in honor of them merging with uh, ICE, uh, that and I'm, I'm, I'm looking through it now and oh, here's their, here's their omelets. Mm. Anyway, uh, so pick that book up if you want to know kind of the theory and technique of what all of those people who went to that school, uh, even those who talk crap about it, like uh, Dave Chang and, uh, you know, part, my, our partner Dave Chang, Wiley Dufresne, Bobby Flay. Do you know Bobby Flay was the, in the very first class of uh, the French Culinary Institute? So they, you know, they started with, with, a, with a hit. They, uh, they got a famous uh, chef right out of the gate. Um, uh, Alex Guarnaschelli, Christina Tozzi. I think Alex Shelley was there. Maybe she wasn't. Anyways, uh, so pick that up if you if you want that kind of thing. You guys got anything else? I'm going to make it on time today. Yeah, no. All right, so listen. Let's do it. John says in two weeks, I think Nastasia's going to want it a little later for the bread. Write in some questions. Let us know if there's anything you want to know, how to cook, any issues you're having. We'll see you next week. Cooking Issues. Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.